Turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3. We're doing well through Nehemiah, wouldn't you say? Have you guys enjoyed this so far? Yeah, I have as well. I've, I've told you that much. Last week, um, well, let me say this. I, I will sometimes go back and I will listen to previous weeks um, just because you forget sometimes in the moment things that you've said or how you have said certain things. or um, I, I can be intense sometimes, and I felt like last week was a bit intense. So I'm, I'm setting out this morning to be um, encouraging and positive and, uh, and I'm just uh, committing myself to you in that way this morning as we get into Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, last week, so I made to, an, an appeal to us in the words of Nehemiah to rise up and build, or the commitment of the Israelites in response to Nehemiah's call, they said, we will rise up and build. And so I made an appeal to us as Capital City Church, will you rise up and build? How will we engage with one another as the people of God in what God has called us to just in laboring. What does it mean to, to co-labor with Jesus? What is it the church is supposed to be about? And I know I didn't dig into all those things, but that was in the heart of what I was aiming for last week. And, and, I, and I said a couple of things that, that what we do flows out of who we are is God's people. So it begins with identity and that also that as God's people, his good and powerful hand works both for our benefit and towards his ultimate goal. So that was the basis upon which I appealed. So today I want to build upon this. Nobody? Today I want to build upon this. <laughs> okay. Whatever. You guys are no fun. What, is, what does Nehemiah teach us? about our engagement in kingdom efforts as God's people in 21st century Sacramento. And so before we read the text, I'm going to read all of chapter three to help us kind of grasp the weight of what Nehemiah is going to teach us. I want to speak for just a few minutes on a broader biblical truth, and it is this. God's purpose has always been in the corporate expression of his people. I'm going to say that one more time. God's purpose has always been in the corporate expression of his people. We know, of course, there's an emphasis on the individual because it begins with people. It begins with individuals. But the ways of God always end in the corporate expression of those individuals. More importantly, I could say it this way, individualism is not God's aim. Individualism is not God's aim. And this is one of the significant truths that Ezra and Nehemiah are presenting to us and are teaching us, that it's not about the one, even though there are individuals who are leading the way, it is about Israel. It's about the many. It's about the people of God. Like so many other biblical realities, we see this pattern. If we look with a whole Bible view, we see this pattern woven throughout Scripture, in Genesis, God's redemption begins with Abraham and ends with who? Israel. It begins with a man and ends with a people. When God speaks, it's to the corporate. When he judges, it's the corporate. He blesses the corporate. He redeems, he leads, he preserves, 
a corporate people. You know what I mean by corporate? It's the, the total sum of the individuals is what I mean by that. And think about this, even on a, a, a micro level, this is still seen. God calls, he preserves, he keeps, he sustains, all those things. Families. Families are representative of a larger truth, which is the people of God. Think about Noah, Ruth, of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on. It's about families. It's not just about one, but it's about people. And what is the significance of the family of God and God's economy and God's kingdom? I already said it. It's representative of the church. That's why the family is so important. That's why God cares about order within the family, because it reflects and speaks to a greater significant truth, one that God is very, very, very much concerned with. What's more, in the New Testament, we see it again, this pattern begins with one, Jesus, and it ends with, in Revelation, the New Jerusalem. God is concerned with the people. And in between these two redemptive moments, what? The church is birthed, it's empowered, it's commissioned, and its potency is the collective body fully realized. And also, too, like so many biblical truths, if we desire to distinguish the counterfeit from the kingdom authentic, we have to look no further than what culture promotes and what culture speaks of. What do we have today? The mantra of today is all about the individual. Individual rights, individual pleasure, individual autonomy, individual truth, individual expressions of truth, all of those things can be wrapped up neatly and tied with a bow under one thing, hedonism. That's what hedonism is. Just the, the, the worship of self and the fullest expression of self. That's what culture promotes. And so, as I said, when we want to understand what is biblically true, all we have to do is take what culture says and flip it on its head, and suddenly we realize what we should be pursuing. So if you ever struggle to discern the will of God, and you can discern culture, just go, I'll just do opposite of what culture's doing. It's true. It's true. Why? Because the spirit of the age is the, is the, is the authority that controls culture. You think he's not going to promote righteousness. No. All right. We're all in agreement about that. And so last week, I was talking about how the church has played its own part in abandoning biblical principles and how it's, it's had its hand in its own desecration through abandoning definitions of truth, biblical definitions of truth, adopting cultural definitions in place. And suddenly, we find ourselves arrived at a Western church that promotes the individual expression of the church, which actually is pretty ironic. That's an oxymoron. The individual expression of the church. But only for those of us who have been in the church long enough, we see this, it's rampant within it. It's about my faith, right? It's, it's about loving Jesus and loving people, so many would say. And I have very good friends myself, and I'm sure you do as well, who have find no use for the church, who think that what's just as important is their own personal relationship with God. And the corporate is actually probably more archaic than anything. It's just traditionalism that's perpetuated. But what I'm saying to you today, church, is just to begin with this foundation that this 
is God's ultimate concern. Yes, he saves us, but he places us and he puts us into a place of people and a broader perspective. God calls individuals out of the world and he places them into family, into the family of God, the only expression of his church. Anything less than this understanding isn't true Christianity. I don't believe. You can't have Christianity without the church, not in God's purposes at least. And then just to, to kind of quickly and to finally drive this point home one step further, just to remind us, what's the imagery that we're given within Scripture of the church? Church is what? Church is a family. Church is a body. The church is the priesthood. The church is the army. And each one of these speaks to different aspects of importance of the corporate expression. They're not meant to just communicate the benefit that the church provides to individuals, It speaks of who we are, whose we are, how we are to function, and what we are to do. That's why why Scripture speaks so differently in, in varying ways of what the people of God or the corporate expression of God's people are. We're a family. We're a body. We're an army. Each of those gives meaning to this and to this each and every day. This is who we are. This is what we're about. This is whose we are. We belong to God. We're commissioned by God. We're empowered by God. This is the mission that we have been set on, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to just lay that foundation for us because there's four characteristics that I'm going to extract from Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning that I believe are marks of a healthy church. There are four marks of a thriving and healthy church. And I believe that Nehemiah speaks so beautifully to the church, and we're going to look at it now at this point. Normally, I will put the text up on the monitors, but I want to do something different because there's a really neat context for for what we're about to read this morning. And if you've read ahead, you know I'm going to be challenged with a bunch of names once again, but I thank you for the grace of community, which apparently there's none in here. I'm going to do my best. I can't wait to get back in the New Testament to ditch some of these (laughs) old Hebrew names. Um, But I'm going to put this up. This is actually shared with me. uh, Georgia shared it with me this week. And it was just a, it might be hard to see if you're far away. I apologize. But this is a a depiction of the walls. And each colored area has a label for the individuals who built that section of the wall. So as I read, you can kind of follow it along if you like. It's going to be working counterclockwise. That's how, that's, that's how it goes. And so I'm going to read now Nehemiah chapter 3. You can follow along in your Bible. You can glance at the photo. Just uh, give a listen. And, um, and here we go. Let's receive the word of the Lord this morning. Then Eliashib the high priest, Nehemiah 3.1, rose up with his brothers and priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, sorry, here we go the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. 
I even I read this twice on my own in my office to myself out loud, just to practice. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Benah, repaired. And next to them, Tekoites repaired. Sorry, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marianothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Heraiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaph, why is that one so hard? Harumaph repaired opposite his house and said, and next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchizedek, the son of Haram, and Hesub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now we're all the way around to the far right top corner. And Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Benai, Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kalai, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, son of Masiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his house. And after him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and to the projecting tower. And after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Verse 28, and we're almost done. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, 
repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, a different Melchijah, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Chapter three. (laughs) Thank you very much. So if you're just coming in and you're thoroughly confused, what we have here is the response of the people of Israel. These are the names of, of men and sons and daughters of very different backgrounds and very different skill sets who have risen to the call just previous to that as I taught last week. Nehemiah says, he tells them of the good hand of God that was upon him. He tells them of the strategy, seeing that the walls are in disarray. And he says, look at the disgrace that we are, that we are suffering because our city lies in ruins. Let us rise up and build. And the people say, yes, we will rise up and build. In chapter three, and I love how it begins. And it says, then... As though there is not a moment of delay. Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers, they rise and they begin to build. And so this is what we have read here today. And there's enough names and work assignments here in this chapter to make any construction job foreman giddy like a kid in a candy shop. All these things to be done and all these people to do it. But listen, it's easy for us to get bogged down in the names and in the repetition. And what I'm hoping that you heard more than just me stumbling through the names, but I hope that you extract it again. Listen, this is why we not only teach every portion of the Bible, but we read every portion of the Bible as well. Because if I'm not going to stand here and read it before you, what hope do I have that you will read it on your own? Every portion of Scripture is profitable for us. And so today we want to just endeavor to extract what is God speaking to us his people for today. And so as I said, let's not get lost in the names and the numbers. This chapter, I think, could very well be one of the clearest and healthiest examples of the church within the entire Old Testament. Why? Because it shows us what the church should and could be like. There's four characteristics that this chapter clearly presents that identify a healthy and a thriving church, which I want to just concentrate on today. The first one is this, servant leadership. And I'm going to begin with this point because Nehemiah begins with this point. He leads with it, as I already said in verse 1, and he says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And while the significance of this verse might be obvious, it can't be understated. Listen, for the priests, this couldn't be further from their normal priestly duties. And yet, it's presented to us with such a sense of willingness and expediency with which they took the work up. In today's modern Christian era, where often the church looks more like a corporation than a community... The leaders are given prominence that I would say isn't actually even biblical. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. Titles that denote hierarchy. I mean, we could probably sit and rattle off so many things. 
board meetings and other stipends and just the things that are that might not seemingly be the way of God for his church. But in God's economy, what? The first or last, and leaders are servants and ministers to those whom they're called to shepherd. And what does Jesus model for us? In Matthew 20, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the same way, on the relationship between the family and the church, as I already spoke on, Paul instructs husbands to likewise love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in John's gospel, after the Passover meal, and probably much to the disciples' surprise and, and maybe even discomfort, Jesus washes, his, wash, washes, his, Jesus washes their feet, and he says to them, Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And he says this, I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. Church, the elders of Capital City Church cannot call you to go anywhere we are not willing to go ourselves or have not already gone. Leadership is not a badge of honor that comes with perks. It's a weight that calls you to die to yourself for the sake of others. That's what this is. Again, I'm talking about marks of a healthy church. This is the point. The priests, they didn't see this task simply as rebuilding the security for the sake of their own personal welfare. They understood that they built for God. They labored for God. This is why it was a joy for them to take up such a task. The second characteristic is this. You might have recognized the statement before. It's on the great seal of the United States of America. It's the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. Israel didn't gather up all the general contractors in the land, the engineers, the stonemasons, and the local cement masons 400 to finish rebuilding the walls. That would make sense, wouldn't it? What clearer picture of the church do we have beside what we just read in Nehemiah 3? Goldsmiths, temple servants, priests, perfumers, city officials, gatekeepers, fathers, sons, daughters, everybody is involved. And they all took up the same task with the same expectation of results to complete it and to have it rebuilt with the integrity that is needed in order for it to serve as it was intended. That's remarkable. Did you guys catch that as we were reading through Nehemiah 3? As I read that to you, all the different people who were involved, all the different skill sets that were present. I love the perfumer. What has he got to offer? There he is. He's building away. It'd be a bit like if you asked me to come over and put up a wall for you. Good luck. But if God called me to it, I would do it. 
I'd be willing. I'd be willing to do it. I'd be willing. And I love the one, just as a father, the one that really spoke to me, I've already pointed it out, was, but was Shalom. And it says that he was the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. And it says that he rebuilt him and his daughters. What a rad picture that is. Parent with child, father with daughter. Plus two, just wild what the significance of that statement is in that particular era. In our egalitarian age, we're going to read that in a certain way of like, yeah, that's right, women, you get to it. But that was totally faux pas. That, that was not the way of culture then. But here is this picture that all are engaged. And as I read this, and I was just thinking about this statement, out of the many comes one. And I was thinking for young adults, for teenagers, for those who are present within the church, may this resound so loudly. The kingdom of God is not reserved for those who are older in age. The kingdom is for all. It's for young men, for young women. It's for those from every single background. Each one of us are called to our place within God's church. We all have a part to play. The question is, how will we engage? And what occasion of faith this should, this should give to each one of us? It's not an expertise that any one of us would necessarily offer. It's the willingness of our heart to be used to the fullest capacity that we are able to. That's what God asks us to do because that's what God has called us to do. Again, just keep thinking about it in the context of God's church and your place within the church. Your ability to engage, not just be present, but to labor together alongside the, the mission of this church and the call of this church, your ability to engage is not on the basis of what skill you bring. It's on the very basis of you being placed by God in this community. He has placed you, and therefore, he has called you. Rise up and build, church. It's not the expertise. It's the willingness of heart. This was Paul's encouragement. Let's turn to the New Testament. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians. And I want to read this portion of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 8. I'm going to read verse, um, let's start in, I don't know, what, where do I want to start? Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I say this not as a command, oh, I just started reading in 8, sorry. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to, des but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
The context of Paul's admonishment in these verses here is monetarily. He's speaking to a people in Corinth who have, who have given, and in the beginning of verses uh, of chapter 8, in those beginning verses, he's talking about that their eager desire to participate in the grace of the Lord through the act of generosity. But I want you to notice that Paul is actually drilling down into a deeper biblical principle than just financial generosity. That's the context, but really what he's speaking about when he uses the example of Jesus, that he became poor that we might be rich. Did Jesus become rich in wealth and poor in wealth so that we would be rich in wealth? No, he's talking about life. He's talking about the life of Christ being an asset for another's sake. This is the principle that Nehemiah that is modeled for us in the people of Israel in Nehemiah's story. Our lives are an asset, brothers and sisters. Our lives are to be spent on behalf of others and not just ourselves. And Paul is saying, whatever you give, in other words, is acceptable provided that you do so with the right heart and on the basis of what you yourself have been given by God. That's the measure by which we give ourselves. The measure we have received is the measure that we give. Does this make sense? Okay. And then I love this, just to point this out quickly. In verse, we didn't read it, but in, in 2 Corinthians in verses 3 and in verses 6, Paul talks about, or even in, I think it's 4 or 5, he talks about grace, he says, favor, and then he speaks of grace again that Titus was engaged in. Brothers and sisters, it is the grace of God. It is the grace of God that we are able to give ourselves in such a measure. Lean into the grace of God. Pursue the grace of God. Live in the grace of God as you seek to spend yourself for the kingdom of God, locked arm in arm with those of us within this church. And for Israel, this, is, this point is further supported by the fact that the amount of rebuilding that each person or group of people took up differed one from another. We saw it on that. There were some that did massive expanses of the wall and some that just did right outside of their home. They gave according to the measure that they were able and of which they had. This picture that Again, out of the many come one, one people, one heart, one purpose. And this is the third point that I want to make here this morning. Unity of purpose. This is the third characteristic of a thriving church. Unity of purpose, solidarity of mind. There's an old proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. Have you heard this? If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The singularity of focus and the intent that Israel set out in is astounding to me. And remember too, the statement of let us rise up and build was the response of the people and not a tactic of manipulation on Nehemiah's part trying to incite and stir up their emotions. That was the people's response to what Nehemiah was saying. They said, let us rise up and build. This purpose, and, and it's like this, 
the one statement is in, in, intentional that it represents the heart of all the tens of thousands of people who are represented here. They understood who they were. They knew the good hand of God that would make them prosper, and they all together set their hands to the work of rebuilding. We see a similar stance in the early church in the book of Acts in chapter 4 when Luke tells us that the believers were of one heart, they were of one soul, and they had and held everything in common, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4 verse 32. One heart, one soul, and they held all things in common. The picture that, that Israel's unity elicits at least in my mind as I was thinking about it this week, is, is one of like a Viking ship. You ever watch any of those shows or the documentaries and just those brutish men and women sitting in, or you remember the scene from Ben-Hur, right? The, down in the, in the hole of the boat and there's this in unison, this every bit of effort exerted to be in unison with one another. This is the picture that I have as the people of Israel dig in to build. Nobody is working opposite of one another, going like this, right? But it's all the cadence, too, the forcefulness in the cadence. It's a, it's a perfect example. Let me say this. I'm not making a case for consensus in all things theological or methodological. But what I'm saying is, is this. If this is where God has placed you, then that placement comes from the command of God that you give yourself to the efforts of this faith community. The command of God, not the request of the pastor, but the command of God. That you being placed means that you have a purpose in God placing you. See, we think that because of our transient Christian culture that we choose all the while where we go. We don't like it here, so we go here. We go check this church out, or I'm just church shopping. But if God is sovereign over all things, then God is sovereign over all things, even in your church shopping. And so the conviction of the believer is that even while I might have a place, in a choice in my free will, in a sense of, yes, this is where God has placed me, it is God who places and let's remember that because it comes with a completely different than idea and way by which we engage. Does it not? At least it does for my mind. This is why we all serve in some form or fashion here at the church. It's why the leadership of this church has the expectation that when we call the church to particular pursuit, something like we're going to pray together, we're going to fast together, we're going to pray once a month, or Sunday worship, when the, when the leaders of this church call the church to per faithful pursuits, the response of the people is not one of being coerced or being browbeaten, it's the joyful participation because we realize that we're laboring together, row row, row. And once in a while, I or one of the elders might stand up here like the guy who beats the drum. Keep going. Keep going. You're going too slow. Pick up the pace. And that's okay because we need that, right? We need that because we get tired. We get distracted. 
we start thinking about how bad the person smells next to us because we've been down in the hole of the boat for a month, rolling, rowing, right? Keep rowing, keep rowing. Unity of purpose, solidarity of mind. Paul in Philippians 2, he says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Again, we're not talking about uniformity in all, on all ways of thinking. We're talking about unity of purpose. Did, did we get an escapee? I'll bet you they were cute though, weren't they? There were, K4? Oh my gosh. That's cute. We should have like an alarm. Like those on lockdown. Nobody move. All right, lastly, and, and we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. Lastly, so the first, just again to remind us, marks of a healthy, thriving church, servant leadership, out of many, one, a sense of togetherness, unity of purpose or solidarity of mind, and the fourth is humility in service. And Paul's going to go on in Philippians chapter 2, and we didn't turn to it, but I was just referring to it a moment ago when he says, complete my joy. He's going to go on and say in the verses that would follow, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look to not only his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I've already mentioned the priest's willingness and readiness to engage in a work that may have been seen as below them given the importance of their usual tasks. But what about the individuals that are listed in verses 9 through 15? I won't read them all again, but just to point out, there's a section in Nehemiah 3 where they give to us a list of rulers and people of prominence and importance within the city laboring alongside the rest. There's not a sense of hierarchy in this call. It doesn't say that, you know, the ruler uh, that, that... Whoever his name is, ruler of half of the city, stood back and was like, you know what? You're doing good. You're doing good. You probably need to pick up that stone right there. You got a little crack there. You might want to fill it in. No. The picture that we're given is that it doesn't matter their cultural or civic significance. It's that all labor. And there is this sense that no task was too great and no task was too low or below anyone to engage within it. The juxtaposition couldn't be more apparent than in verse 14. And let me just draw our attention to this again. Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. There's nothing of special note given to us about this, but you got to believe this was probably the worst gate to rebuild. I mean, listen, it wasn't literally where they dumped it, but it was the exit by which all of the refuse of the city was taken. It's true. Animal and human. So you got to figure maybe some mucking boots might have been necessary. My point is, I'm making light, but my point is this. There wasn't a task too low. And I would imagine too, Again, we saw some people that just rose up and said, I'll take that. 
We don't know. We can, we can only guess because it's not stated. And I don't want to guess too much. But just given the, the unity of purpose and that, that willingness to say, yes, this is what I'll do. I'll bet you he said, that's the portion. I'll take it. I got it. I had a conversation this week with someone here at the church and I shot him a quick message and I just said, hey, can you do this? And they were like, boom, done. And I said, man, I so appreciate that. And I won't say who it is because it might steal from the moment of serving humbly. But it's just to say, listen, it isn't just like doing things that I'm asking people to do, but it's the heart that says, man, I'm for this. I'm a part of this church. It needs to be done. This is what I'm doing. And it doesn't matter what the task is, might feel below me, I'm going to do it anyway. Humility and service, brothers and sisters. I'd like to just to suggest an expanded version of the proverb that I quoted a moment ago. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I would just add, if you want to go well, go humbly. And I would be remiss if I didn't consider and suggest verse 5, the obvious juxtaposition between what is good and right in God and the tendency of the human heart when it says that the nobles of the Tekoites would not stoop to their lords. And some of the versions have that as in Lord, if the capital L, but it's also thought that it just refers to the leaders in that time. They wouldn't submit, they wouldn't bow, they sought below them, and they refused to participate. That is the inclination of our human hearts, brothers and sisters. That if something is asked oftentimes, or if something is pointed out within our own lives, that we go, wait a minute. I don't do that. I play guitar. I don't do that. I do this. Do we see one another, as Paul said? Do we look not to our own interests, but the interests of others? Do we pursue harmony and to maintain a unity of the Spirit, as Paul would talk about in Ephesians? How do we live? How do we lead? How do we walk? How do we labor with each other? Is it these things? These are things that we should pursue, and these are things that I believe that Nehemiah shows us very clearly here in chapter 3. And I just want to remind us again, and I'll close with this, where at the end of Nehemiah chapter 2, which we've already read, he just says that, he says this to the people as he is encouraging them to go on. He says, it is the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. May that be our conviction. May that be, you know, the, the impetus by which we lock arms with each other. Amen? Amen. Is that okay? Yeah. Is that an encouragement? I kept it positive this morning. I tried not to get down on the church too much, but sometimes she's easy to get down on. She's goofy sometimes, but we want to live faithfully. Amen?